Welcome to So Many Bits. I'm your host, Bill Nielsen, and joining me once again from this palatial VoIP line in the middle of the internet is Brandon Shockney. Brandon, how are you? Hey, Bill. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great as well. Thank you. I'm learning about audio production even now. You know, I, I didn't come into this with any like knowledge, so this may have been obvious to other people, but I realized something before we started recording, that if you have a microphone and you're worried about your microphone picking up the fan from your laptop being really loud and it's making it you know, more difficult to edit, you don't have to position your laptop next to the microphone. Oh, so where do you put it? Do you put it closer to the microphone? or? Yes. So what I do is I, I wedge the microphone, like <laughs> I close the, the laptop a little bit, and like I just like kind of mm. just jam the, the microphone in there and kind of just like rub it back and forth a bunch. Yeah. And that, that gets a whole, whole new sound experience going. Right. Well, you're learning every day, you know, so that's good. That's good. So, Brandon, later on in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Oscar Britton. This will be Oscar's second time coming on the podcast. I think this is Oscar will be the first person that I've had on for two full length interviews. He originally came on to talk about his game Desert Child. That was actually a couple of years ago now, but. This time, we'll be talking about him and his new team, Henry's House, and their game, Cardboard Kings. But first, you and I have to do some screen watching. I was outside watching some dear frolic. You don't even care about the outside, do you? Yes, and I'm particularly excited about this. I feel like I say that every time we talk about screen watching, but I am really uh, excited about talking uh, some, some Toy Story. That's right, yeah. For this week, we're going to be talking about Toy Story 2. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead in your... Original film release date was November 13th, 1999. Feels like forever ago, but just just watching this, I mean, it really... The animation, I think, really does hold up. Toy Story 1's a little bit harder... And, uh, to watch in terms of the animation quality. It's still a great movie. But Toy Story 2, they really made some leaps and bounds just in that in that small amount of time. It's intoxicating. Like, when I sat down to watch the scene, I did not uh, <clears throat> rent or buy the movie. I found some clips on YouTube. Uh, but then I was, like, clicking on other clips just to, like, remind myself of the plot and see, like, the great animation. Like, I watched the scene where Woody gets repaired by the uh, elderly craftsman like several times. It's like it, it looks so incredible and the, yeah. the little music that plays. Yeah, it's a great scene. I, I, I watched it through Disney Plus uh, and I watched the opening scene and then I watched like another 20 minutes of the movie after that because I just get like caught up in it, you know. Um, spoiler alert, this is my favorite of the Toy Story franchise. I think Toy Story 2 is... Just really great, and beyond just an incredible opening sequence, the whole movie is is uh, solid throughout. Uh, but I, but in particular, I, I really enjoy how it how it begins. How it begins is why we're here today because it does an in media res opening of Buzz Lightyear, and he is on a secret mission 
to stop the Emperor Zurg, which is a little odd coming from the first film because, you know, we had firmly established, I believe, that Buzz Lightyear is a toy and toys exist to be played with by children. <laughs> uh, and yet here we see Buzz, you know, doing remarkable feats of strength and agility and infiltrating this top secret base and dodging all these lasers. Yeah, it's great. I love it because it, uh, yeah, it, people go into Toy Story 2 expecting you know, something that they are not met with at the very beginning of this. It's it's surprising when those titles pop up and it feels kind of epic in a way, right? Um, and I, I really enjoy how it how it plays around with that. Uh, and, and it's just throwing jokes at you a mile a minute, you know? Uh, so, I, yeah, I really, I really like that. Yeah, if I could put on, like, my amateur writer's hat here. Yeah, it feels like a good idea because coming out of Toy Story 1, you feel like, you understand the world and the relationship that all the characters share. So just like shaking things up a little bit and finding an inventive way to do that is a good idea here to, you know, kind of jostle people's expectations as we head into this new film. Yeah, yeah. And and something where it's, you know, it's taking the first, uh, in, instead of like either recapping the first movie or spouting a bunch of like dialogue at the top it instead just relies on a bunch of like visual and audio jokes for the first like minute or two to like set like a tone uh and then when the movie finally like kicks off and enters the familiar world we know the audience is already kind of warmed up from the this opening and if it sounds like we're talking around it a little bit, it's only because there's actually no dialogue in the scene. It is this secret mission that Buzz Lightyear is doing. He infiltrates the base. He uh, gets well in there, uh, dodging traps along the way, and eventually comes face to face with Emperor Zerg, who we'd only heard about in the first film. Yes, I love Zerg. So good. And then they have a quick fight, and just like with uh, Triangle Man... Emperor Zerg wins, blowing Buzz Lightyear in half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a surprising thing. Uh, and then, of course, as it as it kind of pans out, we see it's actually coming from a television set, and it says "Game Over." Now, what's that about, Bill? <laughs> Jeez. Well, if I know anything about Metal Gear Solid Two, it's that it's actually an illusion. It's a trick to try and get me to not play the game anymore. So I better keep playing because in a tiny little window on the side, Snake and Raiden are fighting for their lives. But uh, unfortunately, I was wrong about that assumption. It's actually uh, Rex, the the toy dinosaur. He is trying to play the game while uh, Buzz Lightyear, the Buzz Lightyear that we know from the first film, is watching off to the side and encouraging him. Uh, yeah, such a fun little little thing, right? And it seems like it's going to be kind of this throwaway gag to open up the movie but it actually pertains to rex's arc throughout the rest of the movie like rex um has this kind of mini side story right where he he wants to figure out how to defeat zerg and through the adventure he goes on in toy story 2 he like that's like a focus we keep coming back to and it kind of plays into a third act uh or end of second act maybe like action sequence with the toy Zerg later in the movie. So it's just, it's just incredible writing. Um, and I love that it, that it really pays off, uh, later on. It takes incredible attention to detail to, yeah, not forget those little moments and then tie them into the rest of the story in a way that feels organic. It's like, 
It's like a herald, Brandon. When everything's going right, it just like all comes back together at the end, and it didn't. You forgot about stuff at the beginning, but then it's all there, and you're like, "Oh, that's amazing." It's like a guy named Harold. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, it's like uh, I bet Harold Ramis uh, you know, <laughs> oh, gotcha. would would have advised that. Yeah, like <laughs> Rex. Uh, yeah, he, during the film, he is still trying to figure out how to beat the game. Later on, they end up going to a toy store. And he finds a strategy guide, which that's very uh, recognizable. Me going to not a toy store, but like a supermarket when I was a kid mm-hmm. and sitting in the magazine aisle and reading all the game magazines. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was I was a big, uh, big game pro guy. Loved my game pro. It was always a bummer when they only had tips and tricks because I didn't want to read tips and tricks for stuff. I wanted to read like, yeah, the game pro or the Electronic Gaming Monthly, mm-hmm. or even like the Game Fan. Yeah, or Nintendo Power, right? Um, right, there, yeah, There's a yeah. bunch. There's a bunch. Now it's all online. What have we become? Does Game Informer still exist as a print? It article? does. It does, because I, I specifically request it when I renew my uh, like GameStop Pro Rewards membership. It comes with a free uh, subscription, and you can get online or print, and I tell them, Print! Send it to me in the mail. And yeah, so I, I, I still get it to this day. I forget what, who was on the cover of the most recent one. Might have been Cyberpunk? Yeah, I'm actually remembering. Yeah, I, I was watching yeah. a, a stream and they were talking about the cover because it's like got some, uh, you can like run your phone over a code on the cover and it'll take you somewhere. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I haven't done that. But yeah, I like having those those pages. You know, it, feels, it just feels more substantial to be able to look through it. Yeah, but but anyway, to get back to, to the sequence here, I want to go through like all the jokes that are kind of thrown out in a short amount of time, right? We have, uh, I think my favorite bit is when he's surrounded, Buzz like lands on this planet and he's immediately attacked by a bunch of enemy robots and then the robots like have robots on their shoulders who have robots on their shoulders that pop out. So I like this like ro- this like Russian doll of robots that like come out to attack him. Very fun. And then uh, we're met with a slew of Star Wars audio cues. You get uh, Buzz's. Uh, it like cuts to inside Buzz's helmet, and he's like looking around, and we hear the Darth Vader breath sound. We get. Uh, we get the Han blaster sound, I believe, when he uh, shoots uh, like a beam that kills all the robots. I believe that's the uh, the Han blaster sound. Then at one point, there's the AT AT Walker sound. The chung 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 chung. There's when he goes to get the battery and he puts his hand through it. It makes the lightsaber swishing sound. Like, <laughs> um, and then uh, there's the X wing blaster. I believe is what. Zerg fires at him and, and destroys him. So there's a, there's just a bunch. And then, of course, we get the Star Wars uh, scene later on in the in the movie between Buzz and Zerg where he's like, I am your father, right? Uh, so it's just funny that we're kind of planting those seeds as well earlier on. It's fantastic, yeah. I, I really liked what they were doing with all the animation. You talked about how Toy Story is maybe a little harder to go back to at this point, but... Mm-hmm. I'm imagining at the time with Toy Story 2, they were really like, you know, you know, cracking their knuckles and be like, all right, well, now it's been four years. Here's what we can really do with computers. And that's like how you get the scene where like uh, it's the inside of Buzz's helmet and you can see the reflection of his face against the glass mm-hmm. with the, uh, yeah, like you said, with the laser attack where he like he shoots 
it's like a prism, right? He shoots a prism and it causes the laser to go off in like 800 different directions all at once. Like that kind of stuff was probably not easy uh, when they were doing it last time. And now they've got like more powerful tools to work with and they're really uh, putting them to the test here. Yeah, and I think I think at this point, uh, Pixar. Uh, I mean, Toy Story. I, I watched all of them in the recently in the past year because I was excited for Toy Story four. So I kind of wanted to rewatch um, the entire series, kind of leaning up to it. And yeah, I mean, the animation is rougher in Toy Story one, but it still it still works, and you like you forgive it because the movie itself is just so good and the toys are still so expressive and whatnot that it, it makes it makes it easier to handle. I, I think at this point in time, Pixar still had Pixar still had a bit of an issue with with animating like real people. Like Andy still looks a little strange in Toy Story 2. Um, uh, they didn't really perfect, I think, uh, human animation until we get to Incredibles where they've kind of crossed that barrier and it's like okay this they they look very cartoony and stylized and we'll kind of stick with that as opposed to the like semi-realistic look that kind of went with andy and his mom and whatnot but i think animating toys and in this particular sequence doing stuff in like a video game setting with like robots and things like that i think that's that's probably a lot uh not easier but it's just uh in terms of being able to animate it you have a little more leeway in what you can do there and making it more cartoony. But in regards to this being a video game, I guess this is what we should, we should kind of hone in on. What type of video game do you think this is? Because in my mind, like my head canon is this is like a dragon lair type uh, where it's like, it almost plays out uh, and you just kind of do reaction commands to, to everything. Right. As opposed to, being like a side scroller or something because it doesn't look like that uh, when you're when when it kind of comes out the game over screen. Uh, but what's what's in your mind? The video game is translated how in terms of gameplay? I think you have to take a little bit of license when determining that, and I say that because if we look at like the intro to Toy Story three, for example, where there it's like you know, uh, in that one they have another great moment where it's like. Buzz and Woody and some other people are, uh, you know, they're doing this like big high speed train robbery or like trying to stop a train robbery. But then you find out it's all, you know, uh, playing with toys in the room. Like it's just the toys imagining the scenario. Right. It's it's mirroring what the opening sequence of Toy Story 1, like it's that it's that sequence, like all the stuff Andy talked about in the first Toy Story. But now from the perspective of how like the toys experience it. Um, with imagination and, and whatnot. So yeah, yeah, I love I love that. That's a great opening sequence as well. So if that's the case, if the toys have that imagination, then should we assume that when they're playing the game, we're seeing like their imaginative expression of what the game looks like to them? Because it's just it's otherwise hard to tell what kind of game it could be other than like a Dragon's Lair game. Because yeah, with the rapidly yeah. shifting camera angles and all the different like action and stuff, like I could. See, you know, it's also worth noting that the controller that Rex is using looks a lot like a Super Nintendo controller. So it could be like some kind of side scrolling game where, you know, you jump down a vertical tube and then you're like dodging spikes 
when you get down lower into the secret base and like stuff like that. And they're visualizing it as this incredibly epic struggle against like 50 robots at once. And then Zerg comes out and he blows them in half. And then, you know, like, you know, Zerg shoots a little orb at a pixelized buzz. And then when it hits buzz, he goes like, and then like he does like a, Expose and like jumps mm. up in the air and jumps off screen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it could very well be that. I don't think, I think the rules are probably a little bit different because it's a video, it's a, like a set video game as opposed to like a kid's imagination um, that we're, that we're playing with. It's like something that's being projected from the, the TV. So like, it's not like when they see anything else on the TV, it, it comes across as that. But, but for the audience watching, right, it's that more like omniscient thing. Like we're just watching a, if we were inside the video game, this is how we would experience it, watching it, right? So, so yeah, no, I, I think, I think there's uh, the the smart thing about it, right, is that it, it can it's left up to interpretation, uh, and it's and it's a super fun sequence that you're not really meant to think too hard about that part of it. It's it's more like of a fake out, right? Uh, that it's a video game at the end of the sequence, so. Yeah, no, I I think it's it's probably a, a combination or, or or more along the lines of what you said, uh, where it's you know we're just seeing what it would be like if we were actually in the world of the video game, and then by the time we cut out of it, it's you know something different entirely. Well, I think you know having discussed it at this point, we should probably get to grading this scene from Toy Story Two, and just as always. Brandon, we're going to be rating it on a scale of 6 to 10, as any good video game would be rated. Mm-hmm. And we'll be going on three categories, accuracy, condescension, and entertainment. So, okay. Brandon, first of all, with accuracy, with 6 being completely inaccurate to video games and 10 being lifelike accuracy, how would you rate the video game scene in Toy Story 2? Man, well, it's it, based off of what we've discussed. It's really hard to determine that, right? Because we don't actually see what the what the probably actual video game is like. So, saying that, I would probably grade. That's where I would grade a little bit lower, right? Say, oh, I'll give this like a seven, right? Because I mean, they said we saw the controller and whatnot, and that that being. Uh, pretty very accurate to a Super Nintendo controller and imagining the sequence and being able to translate that into a video game my my mind can connect those dots pretty easily so I don't want to give it a full like the lowest score possible but I'll I'll go with like a seven it's tough yeah like you said I would hmm, I would I'm gonna give it an eight I'm gonna give it one point for the very Super Nintendo controller and one point for the use of the strategy guide to figure things out because that's very accurate where it's like, oh, they don't expect you to actually know how to do this. You need to buy the strategy guide to figure out what's going on for real. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, yeah, it's hard to really correlate what happens in the scenes. Any video game I can imagine other than like a cinematic experience like you described. Then next up is Condescension. Brandon, if you found this to be completely non-condescending, give it a 6. If you found it to be extremely condescending, give it a 10. Um, I don't I don't feel like it's very condescending at all. Um, it's not like making fun of video games. It actually makes it into a really exciting fun sequence at the beginning of the movie. I I mean it, it kind of you know, ends with a joke of the whole joke of the game over thing and the strategy guide and whatnot. But I, I don't know. I don't. I didn't find it very condescending at all. So I'm going to give that a a, a six. 
I'm trying to think if there is any condescending moment at all. Like, you know, Rex is upset that he can't beat the game, but everyone, I mean, I guess at least Buzz is just like, ah, you'll, you'll do better next time. You know, he doesn't look down on Rex for trying to beat the video game. Right. So I think I have to give it a six as well. Yeah, it's just, it treats video gaming as, as a hobby and a thing you do in your free time. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, the, the ultimate, the ultimate uh, uh, lesson that Rex kind of learns from it, though, is that uh, towards the end, uh, he gets the like strategy guide and he's like, are you, you know, ready to beat Zerg? He's like, I don't need the video game. I've lived it, you know, because he actually like, <laughs> fought, fought Zerg in real life. So I, I like the idea that, you know, experiencing life and the adventure himself kind of supersedes um, the video game uh, uh, experience. So, I, I mean, it's not like a negative against video games. It's just a funny little arc or growth that he goes through. And lastly, then, entertainment. If you found this to be completely unentertaining, you wanted to turn it off before it was even done, and it's only two and a half minutes long, give it a six. But if you found it to be extremely entertaining, give it a ten. Yeah, man. Well, with the way I've been, we've been kind of gushing over this franchise and this scene in gen- in general. I I got to give it a ten. I think it's just really well written, really well paced. Um, it's it's super fun. It, a reminder of why I love this franchise and these characters. So yeah, full ten. Yeah, I mean, uh, however you rank the Toy Story films, I think they're all considered excellent, and this is no exception. I would give it a ten. By the way, Brandon, yeah, you mentioned Toy Story 2 is your favorite. Uh, how would you rank them overall? I, I haven't seen four, so I'm going to oh. bow out. Oh, um, I uh, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I switch around these rankings a lot, but I think I go two. Official ironclad rankings for at least the next six months is what okay. you're doing right here. You can't okay. change the ranking Fair. until... Uh, let's see, until September, October, November, December, February 1st, 2021. Okay, that's fair. Uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do two, four, three, one. I really liked four. I guess I should watch it then. I know, I, you should. It's, uh, Absolutely. It's, it's quite good. I, I was about to make a joke about how I might obtain it, but I remember that the only time I've ever received like a, hey, stop doing that about, uh, <clears throat> downloading things from the internet is when I tried to download Toy Story 2 and 3. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. And wow. so, like, technically, they just called the apartment I was living in because they could trace it just back to the IP. And I, I wasn't home at the time, so my roommate was just like, hey, uh, don't do that. They called us about it. And I was like, okay. Oh, wow. Bad boy. Yeah, I, I am just a bad widow boy. <laughs> I try and buy things now. Yeah, or you could just get like I'm sure you can get a free trial of Disney Plus or something. They're all on there. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. But before then, we have to have this interview branded. So I'm going to bring screen watching to a close. And when we come back from break, I'll be talking with Oscar Britton about Cardboard Kings. We are back from break. Joining me once again on this palatial VoIP line in the middle of the internet is Oscar Britton. Oscar is part of a team called Henry's House, and he's worked on several other titles before, but this is Henry's House's first title together. It'll be called Cardboard Kings, and I'm really, really excited about the topic of this game. But first of all, Oscar, thanks so much for coming back on. 
Uh, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I've missed it. I, I enjoy doing these. <laughs> well, I'm glad because, yeah, the, when I saw you talking about this new game you're working on on Twitter, I got really excited. So just for the listener, can you tell people like what the the general idea of Cardboard Kings is? Yeah, so the idea was we wanted a game where you open your own trading card shop and you get to uh, like buy or sell stock, like buy low, sell high. Uh, you can earn reputation by like treating customers well. You can befriend customers. You can run events uh, like tournaments and things like that. And then you want to try and also complete your collection uh, of cards. So that's that's the game. <laughs> and of, of course, the thing you're collecting is it resembles, but is of course legally distinct from Magic the Gathering. I just generally like the the idea of card games. I, like magic's maybe just the best one so i'm like yeah yeah i'm into magic quite a lot and yeah like i like all card games i've spent like a bunch of money in in like coronavirus lockdown on a bunch of like old digimon cards from the 90s that i'm like i just want to own these because they look cool (laughs) you know so yeah we really wanted to um make a game where we like celebrate the physicality of of cards and and the experience of hanging out in a card shop as a kid because that's why i think i like them so much is i made lots of friends playing like magic and Yu-Gi-Oh uh in you know early high school and stuff so just seeing that sort of not exist within the digital trading card game space just seemed like there was this this gap that people weren't going to get if, if all card games kind of going forward end up just being these digital card games then people aren't going to you know remember that yeah it's definitely a precarious time because uh not only are physical cards like it, it's a you know kind of questionable what their future is you know but also physical card stores i mean they're at risk right now as well so it's maybe closer to becoming a a relic or even even more of a niche than it was before it's something that kind of freaked me out cuz i i live in melbourne australia and just from where i am there's about like three or four different card shops that aren't just like, oh, we sell boosters and sealed decks, but sell like individual cards and and do trades and things. And it's just like, it's such a, I don't know. It's, it's like a different experience. And and it, it does remind me of, of things like item shops in video games where there's like a bartering, there's a, there's a uh, trading of, of items. And then there's sort of like, I guess most of those items are essentially secondhand because you, you don't usually buy, you know, magic cards single from, uh, you know, the wholesaler, right? You buy a booster and then you bust them out of that. So there is this sort of like, uh, almost something medieval and, and, and like barter system about selling cards. And it's a, it's a type of shop that you don't really see in the real world that much. And, and we just thought like that translates so well to a video game. So. And it sets it apart from other games in this genre too, because, you know, you, you pointed out to me before the recording that while there are other, there are other item shop games in existence. Most of them are like fantasy focused, like weapons and shields and stuff, not like this. Yeah, yeah. So like the ones people always sort of reference are Moonlighter and Racketeer. And it's it's hard to know if those started off with like, because there's, there's always like two sides to those of like, there's the shopkeeping, there's also a dungeon crawling aspect. And you always wonder like, did you start off with the theme of you wanted it to be fantasy and then you're like oh that fits well with the dungeon crawling or did you start being like oh we should make a dungeon crawler 
and and then have a shop attached to it. And then you're like, well, if it's a dungeon crawler, it can't be a contemporary shop. It has to be, you know, in this fantasy world so that if you're going out and murdering people to, to steal their equipment and sell it, you know, it would be a bit <laughs> dark if it was set in a, you know, modern city or something. So that was a, a big point of difference that, that we had is we don't have uh, that secondary aspect to the game where you go out and, and like kill monsters or something to get these cards. Now, the game, of course, is still in development. There is a, a demo on Steam right now, but I, I'm sure that you're still working out features. I did have a couple of questions about things that might be coming down the line. Uh, you know, most importantly to me personally is, could there be an aspect of like people playing the game in the store or like holding store tournaments? Yeah, that's a that's not in the demo right now because it's like a big kind of feature that we're we're still sort of planning out how it would work. But um, that's absolutely something that we're gonna have. We're gonna have like the ability to like work out how much money you want to spend on it. Then running tournaments, you can have like certain uh, restrictions on it. Like, okay, it's only gonna be uh, so in Magic and 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 stuff. You have like modern format, which is like a certain amount of sets back in time that you can use cards from so we're going to have like certain formats that you can say this tournament is going to be a modern format and then cards of that that fit into that format will sort of raise in price gradually as that tournament approaches so you can like use a tournament to kind of raise the prices of maybe a few cards in in your stock that you want to get rid of and stuff like that so Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, definitely an aspect I'd like to see in there. And uh, I noticed that there is a reputation rating uh, playing the demo a bit. And I guess with the money, that's a little more easy. It's a little easier for me to understand like how that's going to work with like buying cards and like buying things. How, how do you imagine the reputation feature will uh, fit into the uh, fully finished game? Yeah, so the way that reputation works, like at a base level is, yeah, if you do right by people, so you don't overcharge them and you help them if they come in and, and ask for certain things. So sometimes people come into the shop and ask for like a specific card. They're like, I need a green card with, you know, seven power at least. So if you can kind of find that for them in the next like two days or something, they'll, they'll pay you for it and then you get some reputation. And the idea of that is just like returning customers. So the higher your reputation, the more customers you'll get. Uh, every day but we're also going to have like specific events and things that only happen if you have either really high or really low reputation so a really high reputation you might get like customers who come in who are a little bit greener that you could take advantage of but who may be like uh, wealthier so they want to spend a little bit more money but if you have like a lower reputation you might have people come in and, and, and be like hey look i want to sell you these cards don't ask where i got them kind of thing so oh so it's not just necessarily a negative having the low reputation it could be more like a uh could be like a renegade option where it's like, you know, I don't know, you, you have like some dark, uh, you know, black market uh, tournament or something like that. The the big thing we were trying to say with this game, that there, there is a, you know, the message of the game, I guess, is is more about, you know, the balance between commerce and, and a community service, right? And capitalism versus, uh, you know, community building. So, we have, you know, the two bars in the game are essentially, uh, your money and, and, and your cash flow and then your reputation and, and maintaining that. And we sort of see these as, as sort of in opposition to each other, right? If you raise one all the way, the other one's going to start falling. If you raise the other one a lot, you know, and it's something that, yeah, we wanted to 
sort of point out that, you know, a lot of shopkeeping games are about making money. A lot of video games that are management focused or whatever, or that have an economy in them are about making money, uh, min-maxing things, making like the, this perfect system where you can just like extort money out of, out of these faceless people that kind of come through. It seemed really disingenuous to make a game about building a card shop and which is all about community, right? And, and a card shop is not something you open or a board game shop in general isn't something you open if you want to make a lot of money, right? It's something you open because you're passionate about it. So it seemed disingenuous not to have something mechanical to reflect that. So yeah, that was, that's where those two things came from. We were like, all right, there's, there's a balance to be found in between like having really great reputation and keeping your, but keeping your doors open or, you know, making money because you're trying to, you know, complete your collection or you want to throw a big tournament or something and maybe you'll have to you know overcharge a little bit here or there or you know have to do a few things because you know in the end you're running a business so reasonably sure it's the same in in melbourne that with the local card shops usually you go in and it's just like you know two people just like two average people who are like oh we really like this stuff so we're gonna try and uh make a business out of it it's not like this thing where it's like well we saw there was only one store in this area so we thought we could have a second store here we could start, we could charge this much for this and do this exactly exactly i mean you only need to look at how many card game and board game shops and things there are within walking distance of each other in the cbd in melbourne to be like all right clearly these people didn't do much market research before they set up this <laughs> shop <laughs> yeah i did notice one little easter egg for magic the gathering in there uh like watching one of the vlogs that you have on youtube where it, like people will show you, you can someone will show you a red deck wins deck like i'm guessing you can't like have you know black lotus in the game but will there be other like uh winks and nods to magic like that there's winks and nods to every card game that i've ever like touched <laughs> there's uh the the address because you you order cards on the internet from different like uh gum nut sellers uh, gum, gum nut is like a play on gum tree, which is kind of like Craigslist in Australia, but just buying and selling, oh. not, not the weird stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so you, you buy cards from, from that and they, they arrive and the address that's on the envelope, the address of your shop is like Black Lotus Drive. So that's, <laughs> well, so little, yes, there is a Black little, Lotus reference. In there. Yeah, there is a Black Lotus reference. So the whole, the, the spark of inspiration for this game actually came from a YouTuber um, or a YouTube channel called Ristic Studies. And he did this like half hour video about the Black Lotus. But he didn't just talk about the Black Lotus. He talked about, he starts this sort of essay of talking about why we collect things, why certain things are worth, you know, something. And, you know, when they're, they're not materially worth anything, but they're just worth a lot and they talk about like the the old baseball cards that have like three copies left in the world that are worth like four million dollars or something and then he talks about the black lotus and and why it has this uh reputation as like the best card in magic and why it's worth so much money and and all this stuff and just watching that and just like man if you can spin that into a heart if you can spin the tale of why one card is worth you know twenty five thousand dollars or whatever into a half hour YouTube video, I can spin that into a game mechanic. So, you know, me and, and Rob sat down and, and we're like, how, how can we make this into something like that? And originally, like, it wasn't about running a shop. The game was just about, 
collecting cards and we're like, yeah, maybe you're like buying and selling. I don't know. We're trying to work out how we could do it. And then it clicked. Finally, we're like a shop. (laughs) You're running a shop. That's why you're buying and selling. What's one card from Magic or any other card game that has a lot of value to you? It it doesn't have to be monetary. It doesn't have to be expensive, just like sentimentally speaking. It's funny because I probably have like a really good answer for you uh, on any other day, but I've recently been looking at these like odd bods cards, which were these trading cards you got in um, like chip packets back in the nineties. And and as a kid, I had not not many of them. My mom wasn't into buying like chips for me, so I, I'd like kind of scum them off like friends who, who had them. And I had one card. The first card I ever got was this card called like Inside Outer, and it was just. The oddbods are kind of like these like creepy looking, like weird, surreal looking creatures and things. So there's like Count Dracula, who's just like a fat Dracula and like, it's just like really weird. Think the Loch Ness mobster who was just like a mobster who like swam around. He was like really long. It was really weird. But my favorite card was Inside Outer, who's just a man who's inside out. <laughs> and the art was just this <laughs> disgusting like thing with him, like his, his like, skeleton was there and like his his guts were kind of like hanging over his ribs and stuff and he was holding his intestines and just like just this disgusting card and and yeah (laughs) i just thought it was like the coolest thing if you're listening to this and you want to know what it looks like you should google like inside outer uh, like odd bods with a z at the end or something i don't know oh the the z because while you're talking i'm trying to google and I keep getting this Netflix series that's yeah. looks like it's meant for kids. That probably not. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's it's it's. Oh, I found one. him. I, I found him. Ins- oh yeah. wow. Oh that yeah. Is, that's inside out. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's very disgusting looking. Um, and he's probably my favorite. But yeah, I mean, like I've got like just favorite cards from everything. I think like uh, I played Yu Gi Oh a lot as as a like when I was like twelve, thirteen. And like my favorite card was like the barrel dragon. It was just this like dragon with like a gun for a head. It was just like this bizarre thing. And like I like built my whole deck around like having three of this barrel dragon and stuff. So I don't know. My ma- oh, like, oh, my, my, my favorite magic card would be pacifism. But with the art on it, that's like uh, it's this demon and there's like a Bambi deer and he's got like flowers and stuff on it. He's this demon who just looks really subdued. And he's just like for the first time in his life he felt happy or whatever <laughs> it was just like it's my favorite card that's a, a solid hit yeah i remember yeah that's a a long long running card and i, th- I mm. yeah like that art is uh, so expressive from it's from back in like mirage too and they keep bringing it back i think because yeah. it's so evocative yeah i have a i have like every version of the card that they've printed and none of the art and none of the quotes have ever had the same effect as that one there's like one from 2010 or something and it's like just a soldier and he's just like his his armor he's just like shed it as he walks off like into a blizzard or something and it's like that's still it's like kind of an evocative picture but it's just like it doesn't have that humor and also like the niceness of it like the night the, the one of like the demon just being really like subdued is just like he's enjoying being pacified like it's good for him you know whereas the other other versions of the card have always been like forcing someone like brainwashing them into stopping fighting or something whereas i like the one where he decides and he's like oh i like this you know it's a little yeah it's a a little more playful like that a a little like winking it's like hey we're playing a game here 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now you uh, not, are not alone, of course, on this project. You are you are working with a partner, and that is where the basis of Henry's house comes from. Uh, do you want to talk about how that partnership came to be a little bit? Yeah. Um, so Rob Gross, who is the programmer and, and co-designer on on Cardboard Kings, uh, yeah, we've just been friends for a long time, and we worked on a few different games like game jams together and. We just always sort of talked about making a big game and we sort of tried a couple of times to, to make like a bigger game, but there were always something that I had started working on myself and then he was sort of coming on to help with it. And there just wasn't that like co-ownership. It was more like, this is my thing and you're helping me. So it never really worked out. And then, yeah, when, when I had this idea and I, and I just finished my last game, Desert Child, and I just called Rob on the train actually coming back from a co-working space where I'd, I told this idea to a bunch of people and they were all like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Because my pitch initially Ooh. for Cardboard Kings, <laughs> well, the pitch initially was, what if I made a card game where you never play the card game? And then everyone just goes <laughs> like, what's the point of that? And I'm like, you're just collecting the cards because that's that's like the, the thing you do the most is just collect cards, look at the cards, make decks and things. I'm like... Actually, playing Magic is probably like 10% of the experience, you know? So, like, yeah, but no one no one got the idea. So, I called Rob and I was like, is this stupid? I feel like it's a good idea. And he was like, that's a great idea. We should make it. So, like, he came around the next day and we just nutted out this sort of idea of like, yeah, what if you, like, you know, collecting cards? And, like, before the shop idea and stuff, there was all these bizarre, like, concepts we have of, like, what if you were like an Indiana Jones type character and you had to like travel around the world to like get cards, you know, like in, in Temple of Doom where he's doing his like the, the meeting, uh, with Lao Shea in the, in the club in, I think, Shanghai or Hong Kong or something. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, and then he's got to like escape. I'm like, what if that was? And then you had to like put the cards in a museum. That's why you're collecting them. Like, that's ah, kind of weird to it's a weird pitch for people and we're like what if it was like the movie brick or like bugsy malone or something where you were like gangsters and the cards were like you know kind of banned and you had and but you're on like the schoolyard like trading but you're all talking like you're these mobsters and we're like yeah again that's just this weird pitch so we're like trying to come up with like a good thing and then we're like what if you just ran a shop oh yeah that works so yeah we just and then we just yeah started like doing some prototypes about a year ago and uh here we are. <laughs> well, whose idea was it to have Cardboard Kings with a K? I'm a fan of alliteration and yeah, like Cardboard Kings works pretty well, but then like CK is just doesn't look as good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, the, there's that movie California and it's spelled with a K and I was like, well, if that movie did it, then we can do it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> And hey, it was good enough for the Mortal Kombat team too. So I, I guess you have a <laughs> yeah. good basis there. Yeah, yeah. We have this awkward thing where like we'll, we'll keep like accidentally like just because just like in chat and we're like, oh yeah, for for KK we should do this, and then someone inevitably accidentally does like three Ks and we're like, whoa, let's get rid of that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, not, that's bad. <laughs> just be just be a little careful about that. <laughs> that's yeah, all. yeah, yeah. It's bad enough there that the KK K has a Grand Wizard, so. Oh God! <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down. Like, make sure I don't call a card like Grand Wizard or something. Just like not thinking about it <laughs> and be like, Oh God! <laughs> yeah, good good idea. Yes, yes. Oscar, I did have a few other questions I wanted to ask that weren't directly related. I did want to loop back around on Desert Child because yeah, the last time you were on, 
that was nearing the finish line of its own production. And since then, it has it has come out. On top of that, it was eventually given a physical release, not just for the game, and but also for the soundtrack on vinyl. And I, I guess I was most curious about how it came to be that it was uh, how you partnered with uh, Limited Run Games. Yeah, I, I've just got to completely handle credit to, to anything business related with Desert Child over to David Logan and, and the team at Akupara. Uh, who published the game and they just they're like a machine they just like go through and they like every week it seems like it and it slowed down now because the game is out but like in the lead it was like every week it's like hey we've got a partnership with these people we're doing this these people are doing this like we had things like a razor phone theme that we made for that game <laughs> it's like yeah yeah razor <laughs> want to do like a phone theme and i'm like okay cool so just like so many things that we were doing for it um and it was just all all them bringing that to me so um i think the limited run thing was just they went to limited run they're like got this game it's the best game ever made <laughs> do you guys want to make a physical copy and uh yeah they, they did that so it was a uh, ps4 and, and then the vinyl are you able to look at that as like sort of a, a milestone for your uh, progress in the industry or is it just like that's just a game i'm making i'm on to the next game already do you have a chance to step back and reflect on that it's it's kind of hard it's a it was a really difficult game to make and i was you know making it like development wise it was just just all me so it's like a a hard thing i'm not sure i can entirely go back and and see it like for what it is yet every time i kind of pick it up and play it i'm like oh, i should have done this i should have fixed this or like i want you know it's a play it in like 20 years or something when i can go back and be like oh yeah that was okay you know oh, that was good you know <laughs> But um, I can, you know, I can really just only see the things that I didn't get exactly how I wanted them or that they turned out differently to what I intended. Um, but yeah, I'm probably at the point now where I should go and actually read some of the reviews for it, which I've sort of avoided till now because I, I've seen like a couple of quotes here and there that, you know, people have sent me of like people's uh, interpretations of it and stuff and being like, yeah, it's this like, it's this uh, admonishment of like uh, capitalism and the gig economy. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> I didn't realize. And people were really reading into like a lot of stuff. People like there's like an anti-American message to it. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I didn't like a lot of it is like I, I'm learning about myself <laughs> hearing other people's <laughs> takes on the game. But um, yeah, I guess it is like a, a, a milestone. Having Having it on vinyl was really cool. Just like. That's that's probably the thing I, I you know, I'm, I'm most proud of. <laughs> I think is is like you know just getting a whole bunch of tracks and just yeah you know, I wrote I wrote like twenty something tracks in like a year <laughs> and and put them on a, a vinyl and people people like it. I mean that that soundtrack is on Bandcamp and it's still like people buy the album like every week. I sell a few copies. I'm like wow, it's pretty cool. If not twenty, I did notice in the demo you can. Uh you know, tap on the radio to switch to different songs, but there'll be a few different songs in uh cardboard Kings to toggle between. Yeah. Yeah. Where, um, I, I think I've kind of made like a, a habit of trying to have like something other than just the, you know, uh, the, the music is a playlist, you know, a la Tony Hawks where you just like, ah, you can just, you know, skip the song, do whatever, you know, desert child obviously had the record store. We had to buy music and then that would play as, as you played the game. And then, 
cardboard kings were going for it, the idea of a radio that you can swap between. But we want it to be not just music. We want to have things in there like some like podcasts or like readings of, of books or, or like just radio kind of shows talking about things. We want it to be much more of like a background ambience rather than like a soundtrack to the game. So yeah, there's definitely going to be like a big amount of music in the game. Don't worry. I've already like penned several different tracks for it and, and recorded them. But, um, I mean, that's kind of it. We, we want it to be more than just a, you know, a musical accompaniment and, and like something that is a part of the world building, you know. Apologies for an unsolicited suggestion, but if there's room in there for like some kind of, you know, a st- strategy podcast that you can like put on for a little bit. Even if it's like completely just jargon, that would that'd be. I would like that. No, absolutely. We we want to do do some things there, and we're, we're thinking like, oh, maybe we should go find some podcasts that do maybe less, not such like timely news oriented stuff, and just be like, hey, could we like get episodes of your podcast, or could we like edit it down, or could would you would you want to do something specifically for the game and try and get that in there? It's like, you know, because I think everyone at this point, you know, twenty twenty. You know, everyone's been in lockdown. Everyone's discovered a whole bunch of podcasts. And Hopefully, <laughs> they're discovering got their this favorites. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but just, just, yeah, I've ended up listening to like a lot more podcasts this year than than I think I've ever listened to before. And I'm like, I would just love to have those in there as even just a juxtaposition. Like, there's there's just podcasts that are completely unrelated to the game that that I listened to while I was maybe drawing the art or something. That I'm like, well, this. It worked when I was making the game. Maybe it'll work when people are playing it. You know, I would love to do that. And Cardboard Kings, uh, to shift gears slightly, isn't the only game you're working on right now, though. You're also working on Nanomon, and I that one I know nothing about. I wanted to... This is just something I've wanted to make since I was about 10. <laughs> and I used, to, I used to have this... Uh, my dad got me this software called HyperCard on, like, my old Macintosh back in the day, and... I wanted to make, yeah, a virtual pet style game where, yeah, it just kind of sat on your desktop while you did things. I don't know where that concept sort of came from in my brain. Um, I, I but since then I've like found there's like DV pet and, and stuff, which are, are like sort of unofficial Digimon games that do similar things to that where they like sit on the desktop and you just meant to have them running in the background. Um, but yeah, I was like, I really want to make something like that with, that has like, really like lavish like pixel art and and has like i don't know like a community like feel to it so so the the idea is that it's this uh digital like virtual pet that sits on your desktop you can move the window around but it always sits on top of whatever window you have open so it's just always like in the corner of your screen you feed it when it's be fed you clean up its you know mess things like that but then you can send it off and 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 make it like go adventuring and you can plan these little expeditions to different parts of the nanoscape um, and the idea of the nanoscape was that it would change every day. And it was sort of inspired by like daily runs in roguelikes and stuff where, uh, every day everyone gets the same world to explore at, but you only get like one shot at it. That's kind of the concept of Nanomon is like looking after this little virtual pet and then you send it off on like little adventures. And, and, you know, maybe you get a message from your friend and he's just like, Hey, there's this, uh, there's this like part of the world that you should go and like visit today. I just stumbled upon it. And then you're like, Oh, cool. So you open up the, the game and you go and like send your little guy there or something. So, and then the ultimate goal is, of course, is to like breed this fighting 
monster and like attack your friends and <laughs> and have little like fights online but um yeah i don't know it's it's a very like experimental like side project that i'm going for and i want it to sort of just be like a little bit of like a lifestyle game thing that people just have in the background while they're at work while they're studying something like that and and just like it just needs to be fed like every hour or so you know awesome yeah i'll be looking forward to updates on that and i guess that's as good a way to segue into my question involving other small, tiny creatures. Uh, Oscar, last time you were on, you did get to answer our, my typical question about Pokemon. So I feel like I can't really go back and ask it again. So with that in <laughs> mind, which Pokemon do you think would be most likely to be a customer at a card game store? Probably a Meowth, right? Because they like collecting shiny coins? Or is it... Maybe I'm getting mixed up. Is that Murkrow? I think Murkrow does that. Yes. So, well, yeah. okay. So Meowth has a uh, coin toss as an attack and Murkrow mm. does collect shiny things. So yeah, Murkrow might be like, I'll have an all yeah. foil deck. You know what? I'm going to say Murkrow because Cardboard Kings, we have Giuseppe, the talking parrot, who is a little character in the game. He gives you some tutorials and uh, he hangs out in the store and he kind of looks like a Murkrow. So... Yeah, maybe Murkrow. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, when when the little feathers on the back of his head pop up and he's looking for a grape. Yeah, that that's mm. I can see the yes. There you go. <laughs> I think that's a good answer. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no. I, what generation creative. is Murkrow? Is he two? He's two, right? <sighs> I think so. Anything after Gen One, I get real hazy real fast, <laughs> especially if it's not a starter. Like uh, yeah. Sometimes people will mention a Pokemon and they're like, oh, interesting. And then I Google it really quickly to see what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. No, the only, yeah, the only, like, I, I feel like ever, I can, you know, I could name every Pokemon from Gen 1 and 2 probably. Gen 3, I can name some of the, the cooler ones, but I probably forget some of the forgettable sluggy looking ones. And then you get to like Gen 4 and onwards. And I'm just like, I only remember the garbage bag one and the, the one that's just a, a like, key ring <laughs> just like the and the just the terrible design ones that that are, i think everyone's favorites because they're so bad <laughs> uh, well oscar this was awesome thank you so much for coming on again uh if you want people to get updates on cardboard kings on nanomon or just how things are going in australia uh where can they get them yeah, so you can follow uh, for card booking specifically uh, at Henry's House AU on Twitter. That's there. I have a YouTube channel where we've been doing uh, devlogs for both games. Uh, that's just Oscar Britton on YouTube, trying to do those weekly. Then you can follow me on Twitter and I'm just at Moomoomang, M-O-O-M-O-O-M-A-N-G. And uh, that's a little bit more, you know, just bizarro stuff. But uh, let's, yeah, mostly the same kind of content so any one of those three things you will you'll be informed hey i watched the video about buying pc parts in 2020 i'm a fan of Simpsons <laughs> like anyone yeah that's uh it's my opus <laughs> <laughs> awesome thank you so much for your time yeah thanks man And we're back from break one more time. Big thank you to Oscar for his time. 
Uh, you know, as we kind of alluded to in the interview, there have been a select few games that have tried to, you know, emulate the idea of owning a shop, but that it's specifically in this case a card shop, Brandon, that they're that's what Cardboard Kings is. You are oh. simulating owning a card shop. Like, oh, cool. That just appeals to me so specifically that I, I was really glad we got to talk about this. Oh, man. I'm going to have to look up this game. Sounds fun. And just Brandon, hey, thank you one more time for coming on to talk screen watching and Toy Story 2 with me. We'll have you back on next week to talk about the games we've been playing lately. Until then, if you want people to find you anywhere, where can they find you? Thanks, Bill. I'm looking forward to uh, to to that. But yeah, um, people can find me uh, on Twitter at b double e shock. As for us, we can be reached by email at so many bits podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, we're so many bits on there. Follow us on Twitter and Tumblr at so many bits. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Please rate and review or download from Simplecast or stream via Spotify. We play games, twitch.tv slash so many bits, Wednesday and Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Central Time. Wednesdays, so usually Wednesdays is for a single player experience, and then Thursdays is for a multiplayer experience. So just uh, some stuff I've gotten into lately is I played some uh, Death Come True, I played some StarCraft II, a bunch of different miscellaneous uh, Switch games, and then with Brandon and others, I played some Mario Kart, some Rocket League, Killer Queen Black, Splatoon 2, a bunch of stuff. And last but not least, thank you very much for listening. Have a great summer. 